3: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Gable, and I am the editor of the TLS. And here alongside me, reunited after a week apart, is Thea Lena who I last saw sitting in a green room at Hay Literary Festival, surviving solely on cake.
4: Which might explain why I have to, had to be reunited with myself after a week, Yes. Uh, being apart yes. from myself
3: oh have i not done that right, <laughs> is that right? it just
4: sounds like i've been we, i've been kind of torn apart yeah and no we we together. are
3: reunited after a part. <laughs> how did you find hay
4: i loved it i had a great time lots of tea lots of cake lots of interesting discussions. lots of
3: people who like the tls
4: i was drawn by chris riddell yes which is a highlight for me
3: and you're going to keep that
4: i'm going to keep that i've shown everyone i can i can show
3: and i was there for about 13 hours you were. Uh, was it I re- worth it? It was. Really, I, I, <laughs> I did an event and then I interviewed Kapka Kasabova, who is a TLS writer, which was very good. Um, the other thing I've noticed this week, I want to say that I've seen some podcast listening figures for this show. Yeah,
4: it's looking good. Which
3: is looking good. But it also showed that basically two thirds of people listening to the show aren't in the United Kingdom. And it made me think we should do that call out again where, If you're listening to this somewhere yeah. interesting or exotic or mundane, I, I never mind...
4: I like the mundane I like ones. the mundane.
3: But wherever you listen to this, please do tweet us at the TLS, at the TLS. Uh, we'll find it uh, and we'll read out. I'd love to know where you're listening because most of you are not listening in this country which is a heartening thing Uh, in fact if you want to subscribe to the tls and you're not in this country if you're in america or canada go to podcast.the-tls.com and you can get a very cheap offer and if you live anywhere else in the world including the uk then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19 if you do that you'll get five issues for just five pounds or five dollars Coming up on this week's show, is capitalism broken, can it be fixed and can it save the environment? Weighty questions and we have Joseph Stiglitz to help us answer them. Is the discipline of the humanities dying? Stephen Marsh has had a depressing experience at the MLA conference where all of America's academics gather together and worry about the future of their jobs. He'll give us a report and this week marks 75 years since the Normandy landings. William Boyd has reviewed a history of D-Day for the TLS and will reflect on the anniversary for us. If economists have a patchy record in foretelling financial catastrophe, they do tend to have a nice line in self-deprecation. The curious task of economics, said Friedrich Hayek, is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. J.K. Galbraith once offered... Economics is extremely useful as a source of employment for economists. There is beginning to be some consensus that the economic system as it currently stands is itself in serious decline. Professor Joseph Stiglitz this week is unequivocal. By now, it is clear that something is fundamentally wrong with late capitalism. He calls for much needed reform of both our economy and the economics profession. He also notes that the crisis in our economy is inseparable from the crisis in democracy, for which radical change is now necessary. But this pales in comparison to the existential question of the moment, climate change. Stiglitz writes of the urgency needed to find a path between incrementalism on the one hand and violent revolution on the other. He believes that this is the only thing that will save capitalism from itself and from the capitalists who would unwittingly destroy it and the earth along with it. He joins Thea and me now. Joseph, hello. Hello. Nice to be here. Let's start with uh, your initial proposition that there's something fundamentally wrong with late capitalism, modern capitalism. What is wrong with it, do you think?
5: Well, there are obviously many, many things. If you begin as an economist, you begin to think about things like market power. We don't have the kind of competitive economy that is depicted in a textbook. You think about... The firms we have, the large corporations are run uh, largely by and for the CEOs, the management, not for even the shareholders, let alone the rest of society. You think of the excessive financialization, uh, and you think of the way globalization has been mismanaged. Uh, So these are at least uh, some of the dimensions in which uh, uh, we've, we've seen our economy not not been working well and uh, in particular what we've seen is uh, it's almost as if uh, people are supposed to serve the economy rather than the economy serving the well-being of individuals and it's helped shape us and shape us in a way that makes us uh, more materialistic.
3: Is there a consensus now do you think this notion that sort of the neoliberal trickle-down economics let the markets decide Philosophy that really held sway in the last few decades is there consensus now that that hasn 't worked that has led to the problems you've just you 've just identified
5: well I wish it were a consensus uh, uh, because I think uh, it, it should be a consensus uh, The fact is that the reforms that began under uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan have not delivered uh, the promises the uh, uh, that they uh, gave at the time. Uh, growth is actually slower. Uh, oh, the vast majority uh, in some countries, of uh, more than 100% of the growth has gone to the top 10%, the top 1%. Uh, so uh, that ordinary citizens have not done very well over the last uh, third of a century. And we are now beginning to see the political ramifications uh, of of this economic failure, and and the fact that uh, the promises uh, made were not delivered on.
3: There'll be some people who say that 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 perspective is a kind of catastrophizing one, and they'll say. Look at the poorest countries in the world. They are much richer than they once were. Mortality rates are declining everywhere. Illnesses are being eradicated. If you take a view of the whole century, you are seeing the success, the triumph of capitalism, even in its late form.
5: Well, there are uh, important successes. And as you say, one of the things that's happened is uh, hundreds of millions of people have moved out of poverty, particularly in China. But it wasn't Ordinary capitalism that was a, a uh, no one would say that the Chinese economy is driven by neoliberalism uh, it it is a an amalgam of markets and uh, a strong role for government uh, and it's uh, not particularly been democratic but the real thing focusing on the advanced countries is for large fractions of the advanced countries Things have not gone well, and that was part of the promise that it wasn't uh, us versus them. Everybody would be better off, and uh, that's been shown to be a lie. Even in terms of life expectancy, one of the real concerns uh, is that in the United States now for three years in a row, life expectancy is in decline, and among white males, uh, it's in serious decline And white males who are uh uh, not college graduates uh, who just have a high school degree, uh, it's, it's almost uh, an epidemic of deaths. It is not true that even in this one indicator where we uh, have had enormous advances in science, uh, in our ability to extend life, the fact is that the way our economy has been shaped uh, has led to these deaths of despair, increases in drug overdose, uh, suicide, alcoholism, as uh, symptoms, symptoms of a societal decay.
4: Part of the problem as well is that we're, we're sort of insisting on seeing capitalism as, as one thing, one kind of unchanging thing that's, that's coherent and rolls out across the board, but it's not, that's obviously not at all the case. It's many things and it's constantly changing.
5: That's right. And that was part of the, you might say the, the lie or the myth, or the delusion uh, of uh, capitalism uh, uh, that those who advocated neoliberalism or this particular view of the mar- market fundamentalism as I've called it uh, had this notion that there was a uh, like a mechanical machine that if you just kept it oil uh, well uh, it would uh, serve everybody the fact is that uh 21st century, 20th century capitalism uh, is an amalgam uh, of government and markets. Uh, We set the rules. Uh, How those rules are set really shapes the nature of capitalism. And my concern is that over the last third of a century, uh, the rules as they've been shaped by Thatcherism and Reaganism and ideas since then, have really misshapen uh, the market economy so that it serves uh, just those at the top, and actually, overall growth has actually slowed relative to what it was at in the decade, you might say, of more humane capitalism uh, after uh, World War II. And there's also this question of how technology, separate
3: to that, I know it's a a product of capitalism, um, in its way has changed things. Um, I think Keynes said that if you take care of unemployment, the economy takes care of itself. What we see in in Western societies uh, is both high employment, very high employment, and yet still deep-seated inequality, because ultimately jobs no longer pay probably because of to a certain extent of the influence of technology
5: uh yeah that's right although in the united states we have a lot of disguised unemployment Uh, and and over here uh, i think as well uh the ratio of the number of people who have jobs relative to the working age population is relatively low and that that is symptomatic again of something not working well in our economy it's not because they don't want jobs but there just aren't jobs uh, they've looked for jobs, and, and the definition of unemployment is uh, if you're active, you have to be actively seeking a job. And these become so discouraged that they aren't actively seeking it.
3: Yeah, um, we want to talk about the, um, the endangered elephant in the room, which you refer to in, in the piece, is environmental extinction. Um, we asked the question on the cover of the TLS: Can capitalism save the environment? Can you be optimistic, uh, Joseph, that, that that is a possibility, that, that the future of capitalism, to quote Paul Collier's title, will have to deal with environmental extinction as well?
5: Very much. You know, I, I developed this concept I call progressive capitalism. Uh, other people use different words. But uh, uh, the fact is that uh, the market economy with government and civil society uh, are uh, can be a Very important instrument for dealing with societal problems. Uh, uh, It can uh, innovate to save the environment. Uh, We've had big advances in renewable energy, so it can be part of the solution. But we also know untempered capitalism market fundamentalism unregulated can bring uh, enormous pollution Uh, it has been the source of uh, the carbon emissions which now threaten our planet there's a large group of companies who are resolved to use their economic might to to try to save the world from extinction. But there are also a large number of American companies that are absolutely resolved to destroy it.
4: And so what are your hopes? I mean, how likely do you think it is that we'll see the Green New Deal that's been proposed in the U.S. uh, just recently? How hopeful are you that that will come to anything?
5: I'm actually very hopeful I you know uh that's obviously uh reflecting my hopes of what will happen in 2020 but I think if we have a change in administration in 2020 uh I think there's uh, a broad consensus uh that uh we will have to take strong actions to uh preserve to preserve our planet uh there are also actions going on at many different levels uh I'm involved uh, as an expert witness in a uh, a litigation in federal court uh, being brought by 21 young children who have said that their basic constitutional rights are being put in jeopardy as uh, their future is uh, being put in jeopardy by climate change. I'm also, uh, that's an experience. interesting. That's, an, that's, yeah, that's uh, an interesting idea. In
4: what, in what, what, what are the specifics of the case? Is it because they live in 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 a part of the world that is particularly uh, liable to be affected by climate change more than m- more than the average place, or, or what? What? What are the kind of the specifics of their claim there?
5: Uh, well, I think you know every young person is going to be affected, yeah. but these twenty-one uh, children uh each of them ha- is being affected in a particular way. Uh, one of the children lives on an island that will be submerged by uh, rising sea levels. One of them lives on a farm where increasing temperatures is making the crops that they've been growing uh, unviable. So each of these kids has been, is being affected in a very, very real sense, yeah. which is one of the reasons why the case has been able to proceed as far as it uh, has gone. But I'm also, I wanted to say, I'm also very, very uh, heartened by the global response to the Green New Deal. Uh, the, people are calling for a global Green New Deal, and uh, the young people in Europe who've been marching, including in the UK, and saying it's our future. And I think it's even affected uh, the recent European elections. Yeah. Uh, many parents have said, you know, their children have come home and said, you have to protect our environment.
3: And yet the, uh, the counter argument, Joseph, could be uh, your president could be um, in office till 2024, gets reelected. And then all of this uh, becomes a dashed hope, doesn't it?
5: Well, not really. Uh, I mean, it it's obviously will be postponed. But we will be fighting this in every court and every venue. I hope that the rest of the world says to the United States, you know, you can not export your pollution to the rest of us. If you're going to subsidize carbon, that's an unfair trade act. You keep talking about fairness and trade. There's nothing that could be more unfair that you're destroying the environment while we're working as hard as we can to protect the world.
4: Well, it, it sounds like you you find yourself on a very uh, interesting point on the, as you put it, the path between incrementalism on the one hand and violent revolution on the other. I think I'm going to have to drop you a line to, so you can tell me more about the cases that you're working on. Yeah, it sounds that's a great
3: story. That, it sounds utterly
4: fascinating.
3: Yeah. Um, um,
4: thank you so much for your time. Um, well, thank you. And speak to you again soon, I hope.
3: Okay, thank Bye. you. Bye. It's funny because Naomi Klein's in the paper saying she's more optimistic than she's ever been. Uh, Joseph's just saying how optimistic he is. And it does, you know, the Green Party in this country did well at the European elections, Mm -hmm. you know. And yet, and these people know far more than me, so maybe they're right to be optimistic. I I don't know, I just look at, you know, Trump Trump could easily get four more years. Yeah. You know, the next government in this country is going to be a conservative one potentially the yeah. green party because of the first past the post system in this country are unlikely to be a dominant political force mm-hmm. i mean i don't want to sound gloomy because it does feel like for the first moment people actually get you know i think in the end we'll all have to say that just because we can do things in the capitalist world yeah we're gonna have to voluntarily not do them yeah and i just wonder whether in any of human history has that ever been done on mass people have the ability to do things
4: yeah the bartleby school of capitalism exactly
3: (laughs) do you not think that is is that psychologically plausible that we'll say i can go on holiday this year
4: yeah i think plenty of people are doing that more people need to do that i guess the question is how to capitalize no pun intended on all of those people and and to sort of make make that part of a really coherent movement i think that is happening yeah. it's just yeah we're just more it's just whether you guys wonder whether you <laughs> have a, have
3: it where you have a where your system is you're taxed yeah. effectively on your footprint yeah and so you could pay more tax as you have a higher footprint but that will go what' go, sort of offsetting yeah and that becomes, I think
4: offsetting hasn't has that worked in the past because there's been all sorts yeah. of you sort of end up just buying credits from someone else yeah. and playing the system so I don't I don't know I'm clearly you know I, I don't but, I don't know but well,
3: let's, let's sound optimistic. Let's try and, yeah, let's yeah, end on not? an optimistic note. We've got to. <laughs> yeah, okay. I don't know very much. Joseph Stiglitz is a... He certainly no, does. He's a Nobel laureate in economics. Exactly. He's I optimistic. think he knows a
0: thing or two. That's good enough for me. <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
3: My grandad fought at D-Day. He was part of a highland regiment that was evacuated at Dunkirk, battled Rommel in Africa, entered Italy through the bottom of the boot and was brought out 75 years ago to take part in the Normandy landings. He was reluctant to tell any stories and always changed the subject when it came up. But when he died, he left me a dictaphone recording of his recollections of the war, including at D-Day, and I I really treasure that. Uh, William Boyd's uncle, Ronald, fought at D-Day, an 18-year-old able seaman on HMS Ajax. What was it like for him? As with so many people, he never talked about it, and William never asked. Now the voices of D-Day are all but silenced. Works of history become more important, and this week, William Boyd has reviewed Normandy 44 by James Holland. As with all popular histories, there is what he calls the fundamental question – What Was It Like to Be There? This is apparently a superb book, and William Boyd joins us now to reflect on it and 75 years since D-Day. William, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, Tell us about your your uncle. Why do you think he was, as so many were, reticent about talking about the war? Was it the nature of the generation? Was it the, the horrendous experience itself?
6: Um, I think it was the nature of generation, but I've subsequently um, learned from talking to his brother, who's ninety-five, who was also in the navy in, in the war, that actually my uncle Ronald was traumatised by his experiences on HMS Ajax, uh, not just because he was working down in the magazine of the ship. So of course, if there was any kind of hit, he would have been a goner. But the history of HMS Ajax in World War Two is is particularly interesting, they also ended up in Greece in 1945, uh, where the British turned on Greek communists. And my uncle Ronald, who by then was 19, uh, was very involved in the suppression of that so-called communist uprising. And I think he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, in fact. So that's why he never talked about it. And it's only subsequently that, comparatively recently, that I've actually learned a lot more about his war and about his five brothers who also took part in world war 2 so it's quite a family history one way and another
3: because you always imagine we always think that the second world war is so unequivocally a just war that that at least the moral side of it would have been would have been relatively straightforward but it's it's still the question of taking lives isn't it which must have a different impact on different people
6: yes and i mean i won't get into it but what what happened with the british and the greeks in 1945 is still highly controversial. It was not one of Winston Churchill's finest hours. They were terrified that Greece was going to turn communist, and th- these were Greek partisans who had been fighting the, the Nazis. But when the Germans withdrew, we, the British, and the non-communist Greeks, turned on their fellow men, and there was, I think, 30,000 deaths in the battle for Athens that happened in around Christmas 1945. So it was a a nasty moment but you know back to d day that was a good thing and a just cause and um uh, even though it was a very very bloody conflict it did bring the war to an end significantly um, and it was uh, the second front that finally arrived and, uh, and 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 brought that brought the conflict to an end you know months later
3: what is it uh, what this book by by james holland um We'll talk about it more broadly, but do you feel it's given you an insight into the experience of of your uncle? Did it bring you closer to his experience in some way?
6: Well, not so much uh, the individual you know young sailor on a on a uh, battle cruiser off the Normandy coast. It was more uh, it's a brilliantly uh, achieved way of setting a context for the the seventy seven days that he follows from June the sixth, nineteen forty four uh, through the battle for France. And I think what he's done particularly well is uh, portray that that broad conflict that took place in France in in the summer of 1944. And um, for me, that's what that was the revelation. I mean, James Holland uh, also says that what he wanted to do to make his book different was to look at the the logistics of of that campaign, how people were fed and watered and supplied, and how these vast armies actually functioned. Um, in my review, I point out that the average army, whether it's German or American or British, was the size of a small provincial town, hundred 100,000 people or more. And everything that goes into making a small provincial town work um, had to go into making a, an, ar- an army work. And so the, the, the sheer kind of um, bureaucratic, logistical efforts required to allow these young men to fight each other is equally extraordinary and we all often forget that when we when we read about military history.
4: So where does his account start then? I mean presumably he does he not have time to go into the the huge amount of preparatory logistics that went into it in terms of getting america to get involved and all of that sort of thing is it just is it much more focused on the 77 days
6: he doesn't he doesn't start uh, that far back he does start uh, with the preparations for d day just as the assembling of the forces and the ships i mean it was the world's biggest armada ever and so he he deals with the kind of preparations for d day but it's not just about that particular day June the 6th it is about the battle for France as he describes it and so it's it sweeps on through France and through to this um, notorious killing ground that was known as the Falaise gap in in August um, uh, 1944 Um, so it is it is the big picture but the thing that makes it vivid and makes it absolutely compelling is that he he tells the big picture from the individual point of view, if you like, it's, uh, it's very much the worm's eye view of the campaign. And so you hear about individual soldiers and tank commanders and uh, pilots and so on. And so there's a very clear sense of individuals involved in this this vast campaign to um, break the spirit of the of uh, the German armies in the West. Uh, you mentioned that casualty rates
3: uh, for that 77-day period was almost 7,000 a day killed and injured, which is worse than than the Somme. Um, do you think one of the functions of, of history, I suppose, is to endlessly remind us of that? Because it's, it's probably easy to see D-Day at a distance as this sweeping success, you know, the nations coming together to defeat Nazism. But that's an extraordinarily high uh, butcher's Bill, as
6: it was known, uh, which probably would surprise people still, don't you think? Yes, I think I think it would. Um, it, it surprised me, I must say. I um, it's it's a, a higher casualty rate than you know the the, the three bloodiest battles of of World War One. You know, the Somme, Verdun, and and Passchendaele. Uh, and I think that that is a salutary point. Um, we forget, as as Holland says, just how brutal the Normandy campaign was and I think the other thing that these popular histories do be, is that you know the the armies that were involved in uh, World War two were effectively citizens armies they were they were not fought by professional soldiers by and large they were volunteers and in a way since World War two um, all wars have been fought you know certainly the the wars that, that uh, uh, America and Britain have been involved in by professional soldiers. And so the the voice of the common man, if you like, has, has never really been heard because the common man wasn't enlisted. And so I think these accounts actually are, are very, very useful in reminding people that armies uh, and wars are fought usually by very young soldiers. Um, but if you're a professional soldier, that by definition, you've joined up in order to, to fight. Whereas in World War II, um, you were either called up or you enlisted and you uh, left your daily life and became a soldier and then you went back to your daily life again. So there's a, there's a different type of warfare, I think, and that's what's so useful about these popular histories. Um, they remind people of the, um, the, the individual unit in, in these vast historical campaigns. And um, I think that's that's incredibly important.
3: Uh, you talk about the idea of popular history. You refer to two great precursors to the book, The First Days of the Somme by Martin Middlebrook and John Keegan's The Face of Battle. Why did they spring to mind? Do you think that do you think there's a kind of trend at the moment for a certain type of of popular history?
6: I think so. And I, I mean, funnily enough, I actually met, I have met both of uh, both those historians, Martin Middlebrook, who's still with us, and John Keegan, who who's passed away, but. Um, they, they were books that came out in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, and I, I, because I read them round about that time, I do see them as the as the great precursors of the books that we now read and that now sell in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. Um, they started a trend for, um, as Keegan put it, um, the predicament of the individual in the battlefield. It's not all about. Um, uh, grand manoeuvres and the kind of dry vocabulary of military history. It it makes um, these famous battles or these famous conflicts very vivid. And I think those two historians, and actually Martin B- Middlebrook wasn't a historian. He was a turkey farmer from Norfolk who decided to interview World War One veterans. And he's produced a series of amazing books, uh, not just about World War I, but World War II and the Falklands campaign as well, where he basically just puts a microphone in front of people and says, tell me what it was like. And I think that, for me, as a kind of, you know, part-time uh, consumer of, of these uh, histories, um, they, in a way, initiated this, this new trend of, of uh, very vivid, very individual-focused military history that um, that we seem to, to want to read about in, in vast numbers.
3: Is it novelistic, do you think? I'm wondering whether that, that that's what we you know, the great novelisation of non-fiction seems to be a thing. As a well, person who writes fiction, do you, have you do you notice that? Do you think that's is that is that a, a modern tendency as well?
6: I think it's not so much novelistic as um, as hearing the individual voice. I mean, as a novelist, I often read these books and kind of cherry-pick things that will be, be useful for for my fiction um but what i think is is dramatically different about them it's not the um the 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 grand overview it's very much what it was like at that moment on that day and usually backed up by some sort of quotation or or memory that makes it particularly vivid so um, it's novelistic in the sense that it's it's very vivid and 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 foregrounded, but of course it's not structured like a novel, and the the effects are not um, manipulated like a novel. But I suppose but it, caring I about said, the individual is kind of
3: not caring about an, an a named individual, sort of plotting the 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 story of an individual. Kind of that that feels almost what a novelist would do, maybe. Yes,
6: except they they. They jump around a lot. Yeah. You know, they, you'll go from a German tank commander to a, to a British pilot to a uh, you know a submariner or something like that. So it, it doesn't have the kind of shape of a novel, but it does definitely have the kind of textures, if you like, of of, of reality, which of course the best novels try to replicate.
3: You're talking the piece about facts-driven, nitty-gritty hunger that people feel for popular history. I wondered why is that? What 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 are we getting when because, as you say, these are books. It's an important thing to say. These books are bought probably, but well, certainly more than most fiction books.
6: Yeah. Yes, I mean the successful ones sell hundreds of thousands. I mean, I think. It, I mean, in my own case, I mean, I'm a great reader of these um, books, and I, but they're they're very focused on certain historical moments that I'm intrigued by, and I think what it is about is is demythologizing in a way. If you take something like the Battle of Trafalgar, for example, or Another, uh, the Charge of the Light Brigade or um, the Battle of the Little Bighorn. These are mythic events and they have a kind of um, status and grandeur which you can kind of bandy around. But what you really want to know is... What was it like to serve under General Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn? Um, and you realize that, you know, German trumpet players were in his army. And and I think what it, what it for me, what it does is take something enormous and huge and, and mythic and render it down to the individual experience. So if you read a book on Trafalgar or you read a book about the Hundred Years' War, you um, it ceases to be this um, headline, if you like, and suddenly you've got the day-by-day um, day individual textures of these famous campaigns. And, and that's what I think uh, drives me to to read them. I want to get behind the myth and get to the reality.
3: And this is a very good time to do that um, for D-Day. Um, William Boyd, thank you very much indeed. Thanks a lot. Thea I'm going to ask a question. Do you think that's quite a male I was wondering preserve? that,
4: and I, I just didn't... Yeah, I, I wonder... I don't, also, I
3: don't want, want to make William a, a sort of spokesman for his gender, but no, I, I was th- I was thinking that a bit. Did you not think that? I, I was thinking, yeah, well, yeah. certainly
4: when you see the list of names here as well, of writers, Anthony Beaver, Max Hastings, Ben McIntyre, Niall Ferguson, Michael Burley. Yeah, I, I wonder why that is. I, of course, in the olden days, people would say things like, well, you know, it's it's these are books loved by men, generations, at least two generations of men who didn't get their war. Um, and so I wonder whether there's, you know, I wonder there more, are, there,
3: are there more male readers of, I think military history must be read more by yeah. men. Historically, that must be. the I mean, case I think so I read a lot of history, mm. but I feel that I, these days I read, it's probably 50, 50 men, women. There's lots of great men, medi- yeah. female medievalists, yeah, for example, yeah. people who write about the Tudor period. I, I can think of several female historians. So maybe that's changing. I, this it great, must
4: be changing. It must be changing.
3: There's this great quote that I always use, which I've quoted in the paper before, which is uh, from my, by a historian called Trevelyan. who talks about the poetry of history and the idea that where you're standing or where you're thinking about, someone else has wandered there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, particularly during London, you walk anywhere and think, well, 300 years ago, someone was standing at this point. 500 years ago, someone was standing at that point. And that's a kind of humbling and. Yeah. I don't know what it is. That's a very peculiarly attractive thing to think about. And I think the thing about histories when they're well written, that's its what he says, of, you know, what was it really like? It's its also what would it would have been like for me.
4: Yeah, and the other thing which is connected to that, that I was wondering, is whether we're seeing, and again I feel we must be, or I hope we are, seeing a movement away from um, histories that focus on a very specific, Specific viewpoint of one nation. So I'm just looking at this picture here that we have to illustrate William Boyd's uh, piece, it's an and it's picture, and I mean. it's it's that classic one taken from the vessel, looking out as these people are straggling towards the shoreline. We've had all of these histories, you know, and they're told from from the very British experience or the the American or whatever. Um, whether we're moving towards histories that are more. Uh, not national, yeah, universal. In a sense. Yeah, universal histories, where that. where you kind of will have you'll maybe I don't know how it would work structurally, but you'd flip from the experience of the German on the yeah. on the shore to the to the Brit coming towards him to the you know that sort of thing, you know, like Peter Jackson's film recently. Yeah, it was incredible to see everything brought to life and coloured and the noise from the First World War and all of that sort of stuff, but it still felt very much rooted in the experience of the British. Yeah.
3: It's like and when you, it seemed
4: a shame to me.
3: It's like when you read... I remember reading um, All Quiet on the Western Front mm. for the first time, uh, which I read as a kid almost, but you suddenly think, oh, God, there was a whole bunch of people not like me, not yeah. from... Like, who had this was happening the, too. Yeah, who actually had effectively the same war, but yeah. from, a, from the other angle. Yeah. And it's a very salutary thing to read that, because everything you read to do with... It, well, particularly how we live in a country... This won't be true of Italy for obvious reasons, but we Britain is a country that mythologizes its war.
4: Yeah, being on the right side of history.
3: Be it probably almost more than anyone. Yeah. I would have thought. And you know, we see it in the whole Brexit. And race. the Americans. Americans, yeah. Second World War. Because they won the Second World War, of course. They did. But is it as important to their identity? It probably isn't. Because is it wasn't some... No, in, in America even oh, in America. I wouldn't imagine that Americans use this is unquantifiable, but I want to say it anyway. <laughs> I wouldn't what, imagine stop now. that Yeah, exactly. Uh Americans use World War II metaphors as frequently or in the way that British people do. because Ameri- America came into the war, they were massively dominant, and then it led to their economic dominance thereafter. Yeah. But for Britain, it was, we had pieces on this, haven't we, where it was integral to our national identity, yeah. probably more than any other country.
4: Yeah, blitz
3: I, spirit. I, I hate, I hate Second World War metaphors to describe Brexit.
4: <laughs> blitz spirit.
3: dunkirk spirit like you know uh, you know pretending brexit in any way is like the second world war on both sides do it this is not a christmas well in that
4: there's going to be destruction and and a pockmarked landscape yeah
3: but it's just so (laughs) crap isn't it
4: particularly when you see that picture
3: there's a picture in the paper of the the u.s soldiers but it would have been true of british soldiers coming down the beach like facing that Mm. and an an argument about a trade deal is not that
4: no, agreed. I think we need to end on that now. Fine. <laughs> agreed. Oh, shut up. <laughs> what are universities for? How to save our universities? The past decade has seen a sharp rise in books with titles like these. There have been countless articles about the perils of marketising higher education stagnation in thought and expression within university walls, and passionate, plaintive arguments about the merits of humanities subjects in societies that seem to value science, tech, engineering and maths above all else. Many will perhaps not be surprised to read in an essay by Stephen Marsh this week that in the US the number of people studying English has halved since the late 1990s. These things are all connected, of course, because vocation becomes especially important when individual student debt is at an all-time high and good jobs seem increasingly hard to come by. The choice is whether to leave academia to find a job in a field probably completely unrelated to your specialism, or to stay on and aim for that most elusive thing, tenure. Most likely, if you chose the second of those, you'd end up struggling to write a monograph when your heart's just not in it, teaching and researching beneath an ever-increasing burden of admin all on a paltry wage. Is it really as bleak as all that? Stephen Marsh is here to tell us more. Hello, Stephen.
2: Hi, how are you?
4: I guess my first question has to be, why did you decide against the, the academic path that you were on 10 years ago? I mean, was it a sense of, of a coming crisis or something else?
2: No, it was a good old fashioned. My wife moved for a better job to a different <laughs> city
1: <laughs> and That's I had it.
2: to leave for, I mean, you know, I'm one of the last people on earth who gave up a tenure track job right? Um, that, that was 10 years ago. So yeah, it was, it was simple personal life. Like, you know, my wife uh, got a good job in Toronto. Toronto has healthcare, public education. So it was better for the family. Although, you know, you do meet people in academia who, of course, give up all that for academic jobs, which just seems crazy to me at this point.
4: Um, your piece though, your piece centres on the 134th Modern Language Association Convention uh, that took place in Chicago this year. So what took you there
2: then? Uh, Well, I just kind of wanted to see what it was like again, and to go back to, you know, because you read these pieces about the crisis in the humanities and not being part of it. And I I really wanted to see like, well, what does it actually look like up close? And how are they dealing with it? And so, you know, there's no replacement for seeing these things. So going to Chicago really, really did show me just how bad things are, really. Were Were you surprised by that? um what what actually surprised me was that they were they seemed aware of it. you know, I mean, my my experience with academia had had before been that you know, it was mostly very self delusional, very old people who uh, really felt like. Things were all going to be fine. And, you know, when the job market was hard when I was doing it, it was like, well, these things are cyclical. Uh, I don't think anyone is under the impression anymore that what is happening in the humanities is cyclical. Um, It is more catastrophic. than than sort of a, you know, things go up and things go down.
4: Can you just briefly outline that catastrophe for us then, please?
2: Well, the the essence of it is that no one is signing up to be a history major or an English major. The downtrend has been consistent from the 90s, but since 2008, um, really the number of p- people who major in humanities departments is in radical decline. And, you know, the, that's part of the crisis. The other part of the crisis I would say is that universities have not responded by to this decline by having less PhD students because PhD students of course feed their vanity and PhD students give them the sense that there's something, you know, uh, that there's something, um, that their work is being transmitted, and so you have this enormous glut of humanist scholars who are, uh, you know, essentially not going to be employed. I mean, the 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 scariest stat I heard was that, if you're in an MA, if you're in an MA seminar or a master seminar or a PhD seminar, uh, one out of those eight people is going to get a tenure track job. Four of them are going to drop out. One is going to work as a a teaching assistant, essentially, for the rest of his or her life. And the two others will find work outside of academia. So those are really such incredibly bad statistics that I think it would be, you you have to say that uh, academia is being irresponsible to those students, that it takes on.
3: And you mentioned 2008. Is the argument we're making here, is that since the financial crisis, the return on a costly education is looking more perilous and why would anyone get an education in reading poetry because in the real world that will make no difference to most people's lives is that is that what we're saying we're becoming a you america is becoming a nation of we're probably in this country becoming a nation of of utilitarian we just want a job that's it
2: yeah and the, the, that that's definitely the argument that's being made and i think that's the argument that's convincing students not to go into the humanities, but it is worth pointing out that it's a pretty fallacious argument. I mean, the the people who get people who get humanities educations go on to have interesting careers, and go on to have uh you know the the world needs people with humanities educations. I mean that that's and that's not. Um, you know, uh, just sort of, sort of like corporate speak or, you know, the kind of thing you hear at departmental meetings or something like that. Like, that's verifiably true. Like, people are out there looking for people who can analyze patterns, who can write effectively, especially. And, you know, those, and can and apply, um, you know, humanistic rigor to institutional questions. Like, those are those are real values. It's just that they, that first of all, academia is not defending itself in any way. Um, and second of all, uh, you know this, this myth that you know STEM is the only thing, only way you can get a job has really taken off, and um, and I think it's it, it's that that is one of the reasons that's causing this decline. Although you know when you read the ADE report, like the the report from the Association of Departments of English, like the trends that are leading to this are many, like many many things are contributing to the decline.
4: In part, obviously, as, as you outlined there, the problem is that students from humanities backgrounds aren't then necessarily finding them way to these jobs, either because they're not seen as attractive or the jobs aren't being kind of shown to them there but the MLA so they are doing that increasingly now are they
2: I mean it is comical of course like this is the part where the piece gets comical because they call it the alt act track as if (laughs) you know humanity is is divided into two categories of people one of whom are professors and the other of whom are all people who are not professors (laughs) Right. Like this is this is the kind of world that these professors inhabit. I mean, the thing about academia, particularly in the United States, is that it's completely a self-replicating community. Like it it no no one becomes a professor of English to then become other things. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I do have a particular perspective on this because I have left academia for other things. And I actually know that the skills that I got when I was getting a Ph.D. in Shakespeare, um, gave me real insights and real abilities that other people didn't have. And those abilities were monetizable. Um, you know, they don't really, they don't really kind of get that yet. Like, and, and that's because professors are, you know, in this Disneyland of academic reputation, which is completely removed from, you know, what they call, what they call alt act, but, you know, might just as well be called the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, and so I think the th- one of the things that's most interesting is they don't really seem to understand how valuable they are. Yeah. And, and, well, and in fact, that, you, could, you, 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 you could turn this
3: on its head and this could be a positive thing in a way, because the world doesn't need the world only needs enough English professors. It doesn't need a glut of them. What you, And more the, the case-
2: importantly, the world desperately needs humanists in the world exactly so you you can make an argument that it's quite right
3: not to to push people towards tenured academia endlessly Mm. replicating itself because we need facebook to have lots of
2: people we
4: need those people out here yeah exactly and And it's it's more
2: important and you know like this student that i kept talking to was sort of like my secret you know i really felt for her because i mean she was so amazed she felt like she'd really failed her professors and stuff and i was like who cares about them you don't owe them anything like you, you like and and then she went into this alt uh, track and you know the CIA is looking for humanists the uh, department of homeland security is looking for humanists the military is looking for humanists because they they know right like they they are they know that their own research has shown like the, the, this merely technical approach to questions of war to questions of you know are are, are failing <laughs> like and, and it's not like you it's not like this is some uh, expression. It's like, look at what happened. Look at recent history. We know that human, we know that a humanistic approach to Yemen, to Afghanistan, where people who, un, you know, poetry is one of the major reasons that, th- that the war in Afghanistan continues. Anyone who has studied Afghan post poetry knows that. So, you know, but there was, too, she thought it was too gross. And I'm like, well, you know, be unemployed for a year or two and see how gross you find it afterwards, because the world really does need humanists. So what you know? would
4: be, I mean, in terms of first steps here, what would what would be the, the single most important first step in your view to kind of changing this situation?
2: You know, the MLA itself was founded 134 years ago, and it was founded by a bunch of American scholars who got together and realized that the study of classical philology did not fit modernity that needs had changed. that like suddenly parsing uh, Roman, you know, Roman literature and Greek literature and understanding the philological roots of uh, ancient languages was secondary to understanding modernity, which you could understand through literature. I would say to me, you know, what has happened is that we have lived through another great turning and in, in the whole framework of meaning and, Academia has not caught up. And 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 I don't mean, like, I know that sounds like, oh, well, you should just be studying Terminator 2 or whatever. Like, that's not what I mean. Like, the rigor of humanistic education, the rigor of humanistic scholarship, that's never going to be, that's always going to be valuable, yeah. right? Like, that's never that's never going to be of no use. But I think it needs to be applied to this new sphere of meaning that we've entered. And, and, and you know, and not the world of meaning you know of the 1970s when most of the professoriate entered university life and and which is still dominates the whole discussion yeah. it certainly dominates the mla yeah you know
3: tear down the ivory tower Stephen. we'll have to leave it there it's uh, i think that's a i think that's quite a compelling manifesto uh thank you very much indeed my pleasure um, that's all we've got time for this week. Our thanks go to Stephen Marsh, to William Boyd and Joseph Stiglitz. Get subscribing to the TLS. This week is a real cracker of an issue, and we do try to make all of them that good, I promise. Next week, we have a Russian special, which includes a previously undiscovered ending to a novel by Nabokov. He'd be a great guest on the podcast, I reckon. Alas, you're going to have to up with not you, Thea. No, not me. not me. With Lucy Dallas and me. Until then, from us both, goodbye.